I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the first five verses. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Neither culture nor the state must regulate the institution of marriage. For marriage is a creation ordinance established by God and regulated by God in His Word. As in all matters of faith and practice, the Scripture, which is God's revealed will to man, is the supreme authority in directing man in matters related to marriage. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 remind us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Likewise, as we consider matters related to the subject that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of incestuous relationships. The divine institution of marriage cannot be ultimately regulated by relative cultural standards, by ever-changing civil laws, by emotional attach- attachments, by perceived negative consequences to the individuals involved by the presence of children even in an incestuous relationship, nor even by the presence of mutual love that might exist in an incestuous relationship. Although our own hearts may be broken and our eyes filled with tears for those involved in such a relationship, and although they may have ignorantly even entered into this arrangement, or may have even been counseled by ministers or by civil magistrates to proceed with such a marriage. None of these circumstances can make lawful what God declares to be unlawful. Thus, we must understand at the very outset that only God can authorize what constitutes a valid marriage and what constitutes an incestuous relationship. 
The main points from the text this Lord's Day are the following. Number one, incest is a scandalous sin. Secondly, incest not only involves family members related by blood, but also involves family members related by marriage. And third, incest, when continued, should receive the censure of excommunication. First of all, incest is a scandalous sin. Chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. The Apostle Paul begins 1 Corinthians chapter 5 by citing certain evidence that is common knowledge to many there in Corinth. In other words, what Paul was about to state was not mere hearsay or idle gossip, that of one or two persons, but was accepted and reported as true by the Christian community in Corinth, and even it would appear by the heathen community at large within Corinth. Paul says it is reported commonly before dealing with any public scandalous offense. The elders of a session in a particular congregation or the elders of a presbytery must have sufficient testimony established by credible witnesses that there is a public scandal that is being committed. Mere assertions or accusations without the testimony of credible witnesses is not sufficient evidence upon which to censure a brother or a sister. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5.1, that which was commonly reported in Corinth concerning a member of the Corinthian church was this. Unbridled fornication exists within the congregation. But not the kind of fornication that, though sinful and contrary to the law of God, was tolerated by the heathen Greeks and Romans, which was the case with uh, a woman and a man who were not married being involved in a sexual relationship. That was tolerated. That was fornication and condemned by God. But it was tolerated amongst the, the Greeks and the Romans. But this type of fornication, which Paul addresses here, was such that even the heathens and the pagans were ashamed. Even they considered it to be contrary to the light of nature. Here we see how the word fornication may be used not only in a narrow sense for sexual immorality between an unmarried man and an unmarried woman, but also in a more broad sense for any kind of sexual immorality condemned by God in His Word. What was the specific nature of this scandalous sin? What was that of incest? Incest is a sexual relationship between family members 
whose degree of relationship to one another is prohibited by the word of God, whether they are married or whether they are unmarried. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a member of the congregation was living in an immoral relationship with his father's wife whether they were married or whether they were not married, the the text does not specifically state. But in either case, the incestuous relationship was a scandalous sin, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, the relationship of this woman to the member of the congregation is described specifically as being his father's wife. This was not the language that would be used if this woman was this man's actual mother by blood, but rather the language that would be used if she was his stepmother, that is, the wife of his father by another marriage. Consider the difference in language that is found in Leviticus chapter 18 between that of a mother and between that of a stepmother. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 7, first of all, says, The nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. To uncover the nakedness of one's mother God says, is not only to uncover her nakedness, but it is to uncover the nakedness of your father as well, because they are joined together as one flesh. But notice in the next verse, verse 8, the nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover, it is thy father's nakedness. Is this simply a redundant expression, or is there some distinction between the two? Well, the first is a mother by blood. The second refers to a mother by marriage. In other words, a stepmother, who is a woman who has married a man's father through another marriage. Here was immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that was universally condemned as we said even by heathens in the Greek and Roman world of that time this was an aggravation of the sin of fornication because it was contrary to even the light of nature not only contrary to the word of God but even as we said the heathens realized this the second main point Incest not only involves family members related by blood, but also involves family members related by marriage. Again, consider the first verse, 1 Corinthians 5. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. At the time of Moses, the Lord authorized that certain family relationships be prohibited to those who would be united as husband and wife. You can find these various 
relationships that are prohibited in Leviticus chapter 18, in Leviticus chapter 20, in Deuteronomy 22:30, and in Deuteronomy 27 verses 20, 22, and 23. As we look at Leviticus chapter 18, you might want to take your Bible to that part of the Scripture. This section in Leviticus chapter 18 dealing with incest begins with this general prohibition. Leviticus 18 verse 6. None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. Then in the verses that follow in Leviticus 18 and the other passages that I just mentioned, the specific degrees of family relationships forbidden in marriage are enumerated. The Lord declared these incestuous relationships to be so contrary to the divine institution of marriage that even the penalty of death was required of those who were convicted of particular aggravated cases of incest. You can look at Leviticus chapter 20, verses 11, 12, and 14. Now, as we look closer at the family relationships prohibited by God in marriage here in Leviticus 18, there are some significant principles that must be applied as we consider these relationships. I want to give you two primary principles as we consider these relationships. And you understand that this has to be somewhat of a summary view. We cannot uh, take three or four hours today to, to consider this particular passage. And so it will be in summary form. But I'm trying to present to you the principles upon which to understand these forbidden relationships. The first one. It should be noted that all of the familial relationships that we find forbidden here in Leviticus chapter 18 proceed from the perspective of a man rather than from the perspective of a woman. For example, a man's sister or stepsister is forbidden in Leviticus 18.9. Or a man's granddaughter is forbidden in Leviticus 18.10. Or a man's paternal aunt by blood, that is his father's sister, is forbidden in Leviticus 18.12. Or a paternal aunt by marriage, not merely by blood, but by marriage, that is his father's brother's wife is forbidden in Leviticus 18.14. Although God only gives the various family relationships forbidden to a man, explicitly forbidden to a man, that is from man's perspective, 
in Leviticus 18. We ought not to conclude that the same degree of family relationships are not also forbidden to a woman. For example, if God expressly forbids a man to marry his mother in Leviticus 18.7, then he also forbids a, forbids a woman to marry her father, even though it's not explicitly stated. <clears throat> and again, if God expressly forbids a man from marrying the former wife of his father's brother, in Leviticus 18.14, that is his aunt, by marriage. Then he also forbids by good and necessary inference a woman to marry the former husband of her mother's sister, that is her uncle, by marriage. For it is often the case, dear ones, that certain prohibitions or commands are given expressly to a man, and yet, at the same time, equally obligate a woman, even though she may not be specifically cited. For example, we ought not to conclude that since a man is explicitly commanded to leave his father and mother and to cleave to his wife, that therefore a woman has no obligation to perform the same duty. That she is to leave as well her father and her mother and to cleave to her husband. In Genesis 2.24, Or consider that the Lord explicitly gives a man grounds upon which to divorce his wife, namely fornication. In Matthew 5.32 and in Matthew 19.9. Now, although the wife is not specifically given the same grounds upon which she might divorce her husband, we ought not to conclude that a wife cannot divorce her husband for fornication as well. There is a law of moral equity in such cases that equally applies to both men and women. Thus, in applying the same moral equity to the woman as to the man, the same degree of incestuous relationships are necessarily forbidden to the woman as are forbidden to the man, even though they may not be explicitly stated for the woman. Why is that the case? Because, as I said, the same moral principle is being violated by the man as by the woman when a family member that is prohibited by God is married. The same moral principle is being violated. That moral principle that is found in Leviticus 18.6, none of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. That's the first principle to apply to Leviticus 18. The second principle is this. As one considers the family relationships that are prohibited in marriage here in Leviticus 18, we note the following. Not only particular relatives by blood, that is, relatives 
by consanguinity. That's a long term that simply means relatives by blood. Not only those types of relatives that are specifically mentioned in the, in the Word of God are forbidden, but also particular relatives by marriage, or another way of terming it, relatives by, <coughs> excuse me, by affinity. Affinity. Those are relatives by marriage. Step relatives or in-law relatives are also forbidden within the degrees which God states in Leviticus 18. <clears throat> For example, to illustrate this point, not only is a man forbidden to marry his own mother in Leviticus 18.7, but he is also forbidden from marrying his stepmother in Leviticus 18.8. The first is a relationship by blood. The second is a relationship by marriage. He's not directly related to his stepmother by blood, and yet he is forbidden from marrying her as well. Or, not only is a man forbidden to marry his own sister in Leviticus 18.9, but he is also forbidden to marry his sister-in-law in Leviticus 18.16, that is, his brother's wife. The one exception to this latter case was that of a brother who died, although married, he died childless. In such a case, an unmarried brother was to marry his brother's wife, and the firstborn from that union was to be raised up so as to inherit and take on the name of the dead brother who died without children. One exception to that law of God that God says that a man is not to marry his sister-in-law. Or a nephew was not only forbidden to marry his aunt by blood, as we find in Leviticus 18.12, that is, his father's sister, but he was also forbidden, as a nephew, from marrying his aunt by marriage in Leviticus 18.14. That is, the former wife of his father's brother. That's a relationship of affinity by marriage. The previous one is a relationship by blood or consanguinity. Both are forbidden by the Lord. Thus, not only were particular blood relations prohibited to marry, but also particular step relations and particular in-law relations as well were prohibited from marrying. These particular step relations and particular in-law relations in Leviticus 18 are prohibited by God on the moral principle that the marriage of a man to a woman makes them one flesh, according to Genesis 2.24. So that to uncover the nakedness of an uncle's wife, that is an aunt by marriage, or could we say an aunt-in-law, is to uncover the nakedness of the uncle to whom you are related by marriage. since there was one flesh relationship that was established between 
the uncle who's related to you by blood and his wife. There's a one flesh relationship established between them. And on that basis, it is forbidden. And, and to uncover the nakedness, dear ones, of an aunt's husband, that is an uncle by marriage, or again, can we say an uncle-in-law, is to uncover the nakedness of that blood aunt, that aunt to whom you're related by blood. Now, these two biblical principles that I have just summarized for you are clearly given to us in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, in the following words. Chapter 24, section 4. Listen to what it says. The man may not marry any of his wife's kindred near in blood than he may of his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred nearer in blood than of her own. Well, having seen that such incestuous relationships are prohibited by God in Leviticus 18, what is the state of such a relationship if a couple should enter into it? Is it a valid marriage or not? First of all, since only God can define what constitutes a marriage, we cannot appeal, dear ones, to the civil laws of man as our supreme authority. The civil laws of man may, in various cases, justify what the Scripture calls an incestuous relationship. They may tolerate, condone, and legislate that as being allowable. But we cannot be ruled in our actions by civil laws that contradict the law of God. If the civil laws of man call a union between two sodomites a marriage, are we then required to acknowledge a valid marriage exists then? Absolutely not. Why? Because God says, a man shall cleave to his wife. Sodomy strikes at the very heart of marriage. If the civil laws of man call the union between a couple, a marriage, who were divorced from previous spouses for grounds not warranted in the word of God, for example, if they divorced and the grounds over which they divorced were irreconcilable differences. Are we then required to acknowledge because the civil magistrate considers that a lawful divorce, and if they should marry again, that there is a lawful marriage? No, we are not required in that situation to believe that a valid marriage exists. Why? Because Christ says, Whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. 
except for the cause of fornication. If one divorces for the cause of irreconcilable differences, one enters into an adulterous relationship thereafter. And the laws of man cannot make right what God says does not exist. And likewise, dear ones, if the civil laws of man call a union between two relatives forbidden to marry in God's law, we are not required to acknowledge that a valid marriage exists. Why? Because God says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Genesis 2.24 here we see that when a man and a woman promise before witnesses to live with one another as husband and wife till death do us part, God declares that the man, and by good and necessary inference, the woman as well, must leave father and mother, cleave to his wife or to her husband, and become one flesh. Clearly, incest as a general category is prohibited by God in this particular verse, in the very institution of marriage. For how can a man leave his father and cleave to his wife while at the same time taking his mother to be his wife? Or how can a woman leave her father and cleave to her husband while at the same time taking her father to be her husband? You see, incest as a general category violates the very institution and strikes the very heart of marriage. Such a thought is not only revolting to nature, but clearly and expressly contrary to the very institution of marriage. And God subsequently gave to Moses the specific categories of incest in Leviticus chapter 18, and those other passages that we mentioned earlier. These specific family relations prohibited by God in Leviticus 18 and following cannot, dear ones, cannot be transgressed without making such a marriage null and void. That is, no marriage at all. For such violations, as we said, strike at the very heart of the institution of marriage. Again, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, section 4, summarizes the teaching of Scripture on this matter when it states, Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity, that is, the degrees of blood, or affinity, that is, degrees of marriage, uh, Relationships by marriage, that would include, as we said, step relations and in-law relations, forbidden in the word. Nor can such, listen closely, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Well, if the relationship, another question uh, uh, proposes itself, if the relationship is incestuous, how can it be anything but incestuous thereafter? 
If it is incestuous at one point, how can it ever be anything but incestuous? How can anything alter, if they remain together, the fact that it is incestuous, if it is in fact based upon the nearness of relationship prohibited by God? That cannot be changed. Repentance cannot change that relationship so that one can repent and yet continue in that relationship. Children that come from that union cannot change that relationship. It certainly makes it very, very hard and difficult. And as I said, we weep with those who might be in that situation but it does not make the relationship lawful and right. The civil laws cannot change or alter that relationship and make it right. Thus, the only option in an incestuous relationship is the discontinuation of that relationship. Someone might ask, what about the marriages of close relatives before the law of Moses? For example, between the children of Adam and Eve. Well, in that case, we would have to say, since there were no other people upon the, upon the earth, there certainly was a case of necessity in that situation. The population would have died had there not been procreation had there not been unions between close relatives at the beginning. The same thing probably occurred to some degree after the flood. We're not given any specific information with regard to that, but that might have occurred then as well because of the need to repopulate the earth. Or someone might raise the question of Abraham and Sarah's relationship, their marriage which was probably between a stepbrother and a stepsister. Or many learned and godly commentators have also suggested the word sister there can also be used in other places in the scripture for a niece, a relative, a female relative, so that it was an uncle and a niece that was involved in that relationship. I would submit to you in regard to that, although God did in fact forbid incest in general, as, well, as, as far as a general category from the time of creation, the specific categories forbidden by God were not given until Moses. Certain things by the light of nature would, would be condemned if one did not have to marry his sister in order to repopulate the earth, one would, by the light of nature, I believe, have that kind of, of awareness to marry one's blood sister. Certain of those things, I think, would be, would be revealed to man just by way of his constitution, by the light of nature. But after Moses... After Moses, after the law of God was given, defining those particular relationships that God does forbid, what excuse 
does man have thereafter? God has published His revealed will concerning the degrees of family relations forbidden in marriage. He has made known to man now. Clearly, we have no excuse. Well, are these prohibited relationships in Leviticus 18 and following still prohibited subsequent to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me give you several, several reasons why I believe that that is the case. First, there is nothing ceremonial or temporary about these laws. They are not typical of Christ, nor of His work on behalf of His people. These family relationships are prohibited upon the grounds of two moral principles that continue unchanged throughout the generations of all men until the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. The first moral principle, none of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18.6 And the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24 Upon those two moral principles, the laws that we find in Leviticus 18 and following not only bind the generation that was then living, but continue to bind all generations thereafter. I submit, secondly, that these particular prohibited relationships can... ...several reasons why I believe that that is the case. First, there is nothing ceremonial or temporary about these laws. They are not typical of Christ, nor of His work on behalf of His people. These family relationships are prohibited upon the grounds of two moral principles that continue unchanged throughout the generations of all men until the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. The first moral principle, none of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18.6 And the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24 Upon those two moral principles, the laws that we find in Leviticus 18 and following, not only bind the generation that was then living, but continue to bind all generations thereafter. I submit, secondly, that these particular prohibited relationships continue until the second coming of Christ because God held not only Israel accountable for the sin of incest, but also the heathen nations which occupied Palestine before Israel. God says they were held accountable as guilty of gross incest as well. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24, God says, Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled which I cast out before you. 
And you can also consult Leviticus 18, 29, and 30. Thirdly, the third reason why these relationships continue to be prohibited is this. God held Herod, King Herod, responsible for committing incest in marrying his sister-in-law. That is, the former wife of his brother in Mark 6.18. And finally, the last reason, God makes clear through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the passage that we have been looking at, that these prohibitions are yet to be observed in this age. For in taking one example of the family relationship that is prohibited by God in Leviticus 18, that is, that a man shall not marry his father's wife, his stepmother, taking that one relationship, he includes the whole category within the list of prohibited relationships. Carefully note in 1 Corinthians 5.1 that it is not a relationship by blood that is prohibited, but a relationship by marriage that is a stepmother. So that all the relationships by marriage, whether step relations or in-law relations, expressly prohibited by God and implicitly prohibited by God in Leviticus 18 continue to be prohibited by God. The last point in the sermon. Incest, when continued, should receive the censure of excommunication. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Consider with me these, these verses. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, dear ones, states that the Corinthian church, and especially one would assume the elders of that church, ought to be mourning over this sin rather than gloating over it, or even merely tolerating it. The apostle alludes to that when he says in verse 2, And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, gives his authoritative ruling in this matter in verses 3 through 5 of this chapter. By the authority of Jesus Christ, Paul's Paul says, in effect, this man ought to receive the censure of excommunication from the visible church of Christ. 
There ought not to be, Paul says, any delay since the facts are firmly established. This censure is to be, Paul says, delivered publicly when the elders with the congregation next meet together. He says, when ye are gathered together, turn this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, in verse 4, chapter 5. In the case of an incestuous marriage, since it is not a one-time act, but a continued relationship, the sin of incest, as we noted earlier, cannot be repented of. It cannot be forgiven by God until the marriage the so-called marriage is discontinued and recognized to be null and void. There is no repentance possible for an incestuous marriage if the marriage continues. It is a continued state, dear ones, of gross fornication according to God's word. Thus, if such an incestuous marriage exists within a church, the only recourse, dear ones, the only recourse left to faithful elders of the church is to rule in the name and authority of Christ that the couple involved dissolve that incestuous marriage or relationship. That's their only recourse, is to call the couple to repentance, to plead with them to discontinue that relationship. As difficult as it is to discontinue it. Dear ones, elders cannot be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ apart from such a ruling. Of course, as I said, such a decision, such a decision must be reached with love and compassion of Christ for the couple involved. Every effort to care for and to provide for the needs of those involved in such a relationship must be extended to opening up our homes so that one of the parties can live in one home and the other one can live in the other home, to provide financially if needed to help them find work, to reach out in every possible way to show mercy to those who are willing to take such a stand for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no sacrifice too great that we can make for a couple who would take that kind of a position or stand. Earnest and loving pleas to follow Christ at the expense of every human relationship must be made to the couple. But in the event that there is no discontinuation of the incestuous relationship, the couple must be excommunicated and immediately due to the scandalous nature of the sin in which they're involved. Paul did not tell the church in this case, to follow the, the steps of Matthew 18, to begin privately, to bring witnesses, and then to work with the individual in a more public way. 
because it was commonly reported, because the facts were firmly established, and because it was so scandalous, they were to the next time they met to take the action to turn this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the soul of the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. Paul states that such a man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, that this man is to be delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see, this is the effect of excommunication. When the judicial ruling of, of elders is agreeable to the word of God, God binds in heaven what is bound upon earth. That is, God confirms their decision. He puts His stamp of approval upon their decision because they rule in the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not usurping Christ's authority as king. They're simply acting out that authority which has been delegated to them. It is, however, a necessary qualification that a judicial ruling be agreeable to the Word of God, for a ruling that is not agreeable to the Word of God is without the authority of Christ and thus null and void. And that, dear ones, that unjust censure, I would submit to you, becomes a curse to those elders who have indeed usurped the authority of Christ in pretending to administer that authority falsely or unlawfully. Thus, when lawfully administered, excommunication judicially puts one outside of the visible church, outside of the visible kingdom of Christ to be severely tempted by Satan with a view to the repentance and restoration of that erring one. The restoration, that part is so important. You cannot miss that, dear ones. The purpose, one of the purposes of excommunication is that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Beloved, excommunication is not a way of getting even with somebody who has offended us. It is not a way to pay vengeance upon someone who has offended us. It is not a way to demonstrate our pride over someone whom we feel to be inferior to us. It is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus Christ whereunto, when it is exercised lawfully and properly, Jesus Christ is glorified as King in His church. When it is exercised properly and lawfully, the obstinate, scandalous sin is purged from the visible church, according to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. And as I said, when excommunication is properly 
administered, lovingly administered, lawfully administered. It has the effect. The purpose of it is to restore to communion with Christ and with Christ's church, that erring one. According to 1 Corinthians 5, 5. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where we see that this man, who is actually excommunicated in, the, in 1 Corinthians, is restored back into the fellowship of the church after having committed incest. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 7, Paul says, don't be overly harsh with this man. He has returned. He has sought forgiveness. He has repented of his sin. The implication is he has discontinued the relationship. Receive him back with love. We must be ever so careful that we understand that this kind of excommunication does not damn a soul to hell. This kind of excommunication does not cast one out of the invisible church of regenerate believers. Only God can cast a soul into hell. That is God's prerogative and not man's, lest we play the part of the Romish Antichrist to pretend to cast people out of the invisible church into hell. Dear ones, as serious as incest is, it is not the unpardonable sin. There is grace and mercy available for any sin except the unpardonable sin, which incidentally, in our continuing series of Mark, we'll be looking at next Lord's Day. But this is not the unpardonable sin. Certainly to continue in it, will incur the severity of God's discipline if one is truly a Christian. And it will perhaps, even in this life, manifest in many cases that one is not a Christian by the fruit that continues to be manifested for the rest of a person's life. We cannot make that decision as to the actual quality but we certainly can see that fruit in keeping with repentance is that which we would expect to flow from one who is in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, what type of communion are we to have then with those who have been lawfully excommunicated from the visible church of Christ? Paul says we are not to have familiar fellowship with anyone who professes to be a Christian brother and yet who obstinately lives in scandalous sin. In 1 Corinthians 5.11 But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one, no, not to eat. No familiar fellowship with those who have been excommunicated. That does not mean that we have no communion, no communication at all. 
but that our communication cannot be close and near as it was before due to the obstinate sin in the life of that individual. There has been a wall that has been established that separates us. And we can't pretend as if that wall is not there. It is there for a fact. Rather, in love, we are to call that one to repentance and to continue by God's grace to do so. And in mercy, we are to plead with that one to return to Christ. And in gentleness, we are to call that one to return to the visible family of God where he will be received with much rejoicing as the angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner who turns to God. Like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, when one turns from its obstinate and scandalous sin, even the sin of incest, we are to run to meet him We are to throw our arms around him. And we are to weep with him over his return. For, dear ones, such is the mercy which Christ has shown and continues to show to you and myself every single day. That mercy of Christ. This is the mercy that we should extend to those who repent and seek God's forgiveness even for the sin of incest. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, take the words which have been spoken, O Lord, however weak, and frail. Take the word of God and the power of thy word and burn it into our lives and into our conscience. Through the words that have gone forth today, cause us to hate sin, for sin deceives and deludes us and leads us into all types of error and further sin. It blinds us to the truth But, O Lord, we pray that Thou would at the same time not only cause us to hate that sin, but to love the mercy and grace of Christ and to daily avail ourselves of that mercy and grace. We ask our Father that Thou would would minister to Thy people this day. For Jesus' sake, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450 